Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are, of course, at the start of yet another week. Uh, it's very difficult to imagine why uh, we are, of course, uh, uh, thinking about Brexit. But here we are once more. Uh, there's been plenty of recriminations. You've tried making up. You've tried explaining. You might even have tried plying them with alcohol in a vain attempt to convince them. But this is D-Day, the day when it all changes. You're moving out and you're taking your stuff. Anyone that's ever split up with their partner, anyone that has ever been through a divorce, anyone that has had to work out who owns which books, which DVDs and which pets will recognise the death throes of a failed relationship. And it is with this attitude that we will leave the European Union, ladies and gentlemen, not with a view to damaging any future chances of sharing custody of the children, not with a view to doing the most harm to someone you used to love, and certainly not in an attempt to let them dictate the terms. Today, as the talks continue between Michael Gove and Michel Barnier in Brussels, we can only wish them both the best and urge them to come to a conclusion that works for everyone. And if they can't do that, to simply walk away amicably without giving away all the money to ambulance-chasing lawyers. It's that simple, isn't it? That's Brexit. That's all it is. We'll be checking in with John Rensel, Chief Political Commentator from The Independent, to get his view uh, on the state of things. 0344 499 1000. I imagine most of you out there listening to this this morning will be more than happy to never hear the word Brexit ever again and to move on with the rest of your lives to go and buy yourselves some bananas, go and buy yourselves some cherries, go and buy yourselves some basmati rice. It won't make any difference in the long term, will it? Coming up later on, we'll catch up with the man on Sunday's Peter Hitchens, who this week is most concerned with the un spoken revolution that's been going on in this country culturally since Tony Blair came to power 23 years ago. And I'll be making an announcement in concert with Mr Loophole, the lawyer, Nick Freeman, about our parliamentary petition to bring cyclists into line with drivers under the law. 0344 499 1000. Also, we'll be checking in with all of you as to what you got up to over the weekend. The Sun on Saturday said £1.5 billion was likely to be spent on Christmas trees, on Christmas shopping, in pubs and bars over the course of of the weekend. Was it a case uh, of going shopping and having a few drinks down a local pub with a couple of scotch eggs? Or are you still smarting in tier three, unable to do any of the things you want to do? 0344 499 1000. And we might even get some clues about the origin of life on Earth as well. And of course, we can't do the show today without the mention uh, of the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, who are now going to give out some awards. Isn't that nice? You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, the papers, of course, this morning are absolutely chock full of Brexit this, Brexit that, fishing talks, 
Fishing doesn't matter. Fishing does matter. Fishing is a very small part of the GDP of this country, uh, but it's very, very totemic, and that's why we have to be very careful. Uh, Merkel and Macron in final bid for Brexit deal is what it says uh, on the front page of the Times. The Guardian, uh, breakthrough on fishing rights as Brexit talks hanging about us. I've got one question for all those people who say that fishing really doesn't matter and it doesn't mean much to the overall overarching width and breadth of our cultural reunion or otherwise with the European Union. Well, if it doesn't matter so much, why does everybody keep talking about it? And if it doesn't matter so much, why on earth can't they just make an agreement about it? Let's talk to John Rental and get some common sense on board. John, a very good morning to you. <laughs> good morning, Mike. Now, uh, um, there are many questions here, but the first thing I thought of as I was talking to Martin, my producer, this morning, I said, you know, it, it feels a bit like that time you came and sat down with us uh, in the tent in Westminster, the tent of common sense. And I actually said to you, because we'd been doing it for so long, I've actually run out of questions. And I feel a bit <laughs> like that. I feel a bit like that this morning. You know, what on, earth, what on earth can we talk about? I mean, do, do you not remember the deadlocked parliament? That yes. Couldn't agree? absolutely anything everything that uh, was put to it it voted down yeah. and that just went on and on and on for months and months and months i mean so that's the background to to where we are today um i mean at least you know something does have to be decided between now and the 31st of december right uh, nobody knows nobody knows or nobody's saying what the real deadline is right uh, i mean because you you know you've got to get the european parliament has to sign it off you've got to get it translated into all the languages and you've got to get it legally scrubbed uh, and nobody knows how long it takes to do all those things with a with, with a document but you're absolutely right um i mean i cannot understand why you cannot get uh, some grown-ups in a room to sort out a sensible compromise on mm. fish uh, and as for the idea that you know the UK wants to subsidise uh, its exports to the EU or anywhere else, uh, that's absurd. So the, uh, a deal should be should be possible to do. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought, and I know this might sound revolutionary, but the most important thing for both sides is to keep things pretty much as they are, right? I mean, there's no yeah. real incentive for anyone to change the way that we do business with the European Union, or indeed for them to change the way that they do business with us. It would make an awful lot more sense to just keep everything the same. Well, uh, yes, except that then we would have uh, we would have privileged access to, uh, the, to to the biggest market in the world. Um, yeah, but, and which we, we, but which we which we don't really use as a biggest market in the world, though, because much of our trade or most of our trade is not with the EU. No, no, most of our no, the largest the largest single block of, of, of trade is with the EU. They are mo they are our most important uh, partner. Uh, and you know, up till now, we've had to pay for the for, for the privilege of access to that market. Right. We've had to pay, pay net contributions. They don't want to give us that that access uh, completely free of charge. So uh, that's what the negotiations are about. And I don't see why you sh it, it should be possible to to, to reach some kind of uh, accommodation. Mm. But uh, there's obviously a large amount of posturing, breast beating, and uh, showing off going on just before the uh, before the two sides finally uh, compromise yes. and the question is compromise more yeah, but exactly. I mean, one of the reasons why we've left the European Union, though, is because we believe that having to pay to access their market is unreasonable. Therefore, we don't want to pay to access their market. Therefore, we no, want to I pay. Do. Therefore, I we want know. to pay less to access the market, or <laughs> they can get lost. No, the reason we're leaving is because people don't want to be part of a European uh, superstar. Yeah, but that's part, part of it, though. But that's part of it. You know, it's, it's like being part of a club uh, where they come round every month and and threaten to burn your house to the ground unless you give them a load of money. No, but I mean, whether we whether we're part of it or not, we still we're st our, our our economy is going to be dominated by 
uh, this huge market uh, right on our doorstep. And, you know, we will want to sell uh, goods and services in that market and we will have to abide by the rules of that market if we're, if we're to do so. But the question, the, the point of leaving is so that we're not part of the political, the political structures. Yeah. Uh, but we could, we could, we should be able to re- to negotiate some kind of uh, some kind of relationship. I mean, this this should not be beyond the wit of, uh, of, no. of human. Well, I, I likened it when I was speaking to Julia Hartley Brewer uh, just earlier before we came on um, to a divorce. You know, and I mean, you may or may not have been through one of those. I have been, um, and in the end. It feels for me today, and this is why I'm about to sue Emmanuel Macron, because he's made all these horrible memories flood back into my brain. Uh, it's a bit like standing outside the house that you that you paid for, that you used to live in with your wife, uh, waiting for her to hand you a couple of bags uh, of, of rubbish, which in fact are your belongings for the last 20 years. Uh, and you leave uh, hopefully relatively amicably uh, with a promise to see the kids next weekend. I, well, I think there's, 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 there's an emotional truth in that, which is that it is, uh, it's a rather sad occasion, and it is, it is, um, it's damaging and humiliating for the European Union to lose yes. uh, such an important member. Yeah. I mean that that is something that I think we in Britain uh, overlook. We don't understand the extent to which we've hurt them by saying no, we don't want to be part of your club, right. uh, and and we're off, and that actually diminishes the European Union, and it means that they they feel emotionally. Uh, reluctant to give us um, to give us a good deal, and you know you can you can understand that. Well, you can, but they should be more responsible, surely, than that as an institution, rather than as uh, a spurned partner. You know, it's not we don't expect them to behave uh, like some kind of crazed divorcee uh, or uh, bloke who's who's who wants to wreak havoc on the relationship just because it's all broken down. The point is, you're supposed to act like a grown up. It's supposed to be a grown up organisation. But the more that you look at it, the more reason uh, you think to leave it. Well, I think we, we British are not exactly behaving like grown-ups either. I mean, you know, there is a there is a a, a streak of arrogance in the in the UK uh, posture, which is that we want to have our cake and eat it, as you as you just said. You, you know, why can't we just keep things as they are yeah. and, and just not not pay on? Yeah, but that's in terms of the trade not, I'm talking not, about, not in terms of everything else. No, we yeah, but um, you know, we are. Uh, threatening to tear up the withdrawal agreement, um, which is which is quite a hard line uh, negotiating position. You can understand why they don't like it. Yeah, but they don't like it. But I can tell you this. If I went to the owners of, uh, of Verve Clico and said, look, I will continue to buy as much champagne from you as I did last year, and I'm very happy to pay the same amount of money. What do you think they would say? Oh, no, because you have left the European <laughs> Union, we must charge you an extra £10. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> No, but that's the that's the, that's the old BMW. But that's, no, but that's the re, that's the reality, is it not? No, it isn't, Mike, because that's not how it works. If if that was how it was how it worked, we would have had a deal by now. This was the myth that uh, that some of the Brexiteers uh, peddled, which was that the BMW owners and the Prosecco sellers yeah. would insist that their governments do a deal because they want to carry on selling to us. Uh, that hasn't happened. And the reason it hasn't happened is because Europe actually does feel a sense of solidarity and and, and a sense of, of having been insulted by the British in wanting to leave. So therefore, they're going to stick together and they're going to they're going to drive an extremely no. hard bargain. No, I don't believe that. Have... I don't believe that for a second, because the people who buy the most champagne in the world from France are we in Britain, okay? And so therefore yeah. the people Either who run the people who run the champagne business in France will not want to lose that market. Well you say that, but you know, have you heard them take to the streets and demand the 
a sellout deal by the EU uh, to the, to well, the no, UK. Well, no, not everybody does take to the streets, John. The point is, is that they are business people. They're not interested really in Brussels. There's plenty of people French, who live... They're, they're, take to the well, no, the French do take to the streets, but the French owners do not take to the street. The French farmers take to the street. That's a very different matter. They always have and they always will. But, you know, the French are not just one amorphous mass of people. The bottom line for me, John, uh, is that most businesses in uh, all countries of the world detest government detest parliaments, detest any kind of regulation because they would rather have a free market to do as and what they wish. And that's why they're not saying anything because they don't want to be penalised by their own governments. Yeah, I, I think we're, we're well past that point now. I mean, I think, you know, the time for, for French and German businesses to make their views known to their governments uh, was, was over the past year or so. Uh, and they, they simply have not behaved in the way that some of the more ardent Brexiteers in this country expected them to. Uh, they've left it to the governments to negotiate uh, the terms of our exit, uh, and we're now in the in the final few days, and it's it's going to be it's going to be up to the politicians in Brussels and and, and London to, uh, to to sort that out. I mean, I don't think the the the, the business interests in in the EU are going to have much say. No, I don't think so either. Um, but I mean, the more we hear that there is likely to be a deal or not likely to be a deal, the less we know, really, don't we? I mean, I was listening to, uh, I think, the vice president of the European Parliament yesterday who was saying that, uh, yes, of course, they would come back and convene a special session of Parliament in between Christmas and New Year if the deal was brokered. Uh, and they would sign it off quite happily, regardless of what it was, on the grounds that anything that the negotiators negotiated would be fine with them. Yeah. I mean, that is that is how the European politics Which kind of works. makes a mockery of the whole parliamentary idea, doesn't it? Well, yeah, except, I mean, we, you know, our parliament doesn't have to sign off the deal. Um, so... Well, the House of know. Lords won't ever sign it off, will it? I mean, the House of Lords just go, no, we want to stay, we want to stay in Europe, <laughs> no! <laughs> no, well, they, I mean, our parliament gets to sign it off after the deal is done. Right. Which, uh, doesn't 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 strike me as, as as more democratic than the European. Well, that would be because we had a referendum in which we voted to leave, and also yeah. the government who won in December a long way ago, as it was, uh, were voted in purely and utterly to get Brexit done. Yeah, fair enough. And and but the way the European politics works is that if the European Commission and if European uh, heads of government agree to, uh, to to a deal, then Parliament is. The European Parliament is likely to as well. I mean, they would be very unlikely to throw it out at the last minute. Yeah. Um, I mean, but we ought to be thankful for coronavirus in a sense that the European Parliament has now set up these processes where they can meet and vote remotely. Uh, so they'll be able to do that at the last minute. So, yes. uh, well, let's hope they're not going to be charging us any expenses on the basis of that. <laughs> I mean, funnily enough, John, even as we speak, right, and I think this is a great metaphor for what's going on in Brussels, the fog is, 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 is moving in. And when I started this show, I could barely see across the river. Now I can't see out the window at all. So the fog is actually getting worse uh, and the murk uh, and the murkiness is getting uh, even thicker. So the idea that we can even imagine what's going to be happening over the next few days uh, is laughable, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, but that's the problem with uh, with coming onto a show like yours is that I do not know what's going on in Brussels. I do not know what the real deadline uh, is for, for for agreeing something. I don't know how long it takes to uh, to, to to translate a a long uh, treaty text and uh, and legally uh, scrub it. Um, so I don't know when the, when the real deadline is. I don't know if if it seriously has to be done by Thursday, which is when the European. Mm. 
heads of government meet in, in Brussels or whether there's scope for pushing it into next week, in which case, you know, this is just going to go on and on. Well, I mean, one thing we've learned, you and I, from our experience of last year, sitting in that tent endlessly and for hours on end, and even on, especially on a Saturday morning, if you remember, the Oliver Letwin day, um, when we thought <laughs> something was going to happen and then nothing happened and we all went home as if it was Friday. Um, we literally, uh, every single deadline that has ever been set has not been a deadline. No, that's true. Uh, but I mean, that has always been the case with uh, with European <laughs> negotiations. I did think that, you know, all these these wise old old folk who said, you know, like a year ago, they said, well, of course, this will this will be decided at the 25th hour of the uh, of, of the final day. These European negotiations yes. always go down last minute. I thought they would. I thought I thought that just sounded like a smart thing to say in a, in a, in a radio interview. Mm. But actually, it turns out to be true. And that is the way these things are going to be done. I mean, 95% of this treaty is it has has actually been drawn up allegedly. Um, it is just the it's the last few things that need to be sorted out. And yeah. They will be sorted last minute. I mean, we my, just don't know. My overarching kind of sense of all of this is that come January, February, March, whatever, you know, it will not be any more difficult to get hold of all the things that we can get hold of now. It will not be any more expensive to get hold of all the things that we get hold of now. Um, and life will very much continue as it is now. And we, well, won't, even, we won't even notice. But I, hope, I mean, I hope you're right, but I think there might well be some some blips uh, in the meantime. I mean, you can't you can't introduce new checks and uh, and controls uh, on on movements that were previously completely free without causing some uh, some queues in Kent. I wouldn't have thought. But, well, yeah, uh, but we've I, always had queues in Kent. I mean, Kent is, has been a lorry park for many years. I mean, Damien Green yesterday on Sky said that he had heard and was worried that some lorry hauliers would avoid Britain. Well, I'm sorry. If you're delivering something to Sevenoaks, you can't really avoid Britain. And if you <laughs> if you drive around in the European Union, uh, but delivering goods, you're not going to avoid the place you're supposed to bring them to, are you? No, but uh, I, I mean, I don't think anybody expected when uh, when when uh, the nation voted to leave the European Union that this this would mean uh, uh, lorries being issued with permits to enter the county of Kent. I mean, that's, yeah, that's what's, not what... What's, well, what's the problem? I mean, you know, you have to get a permit to leave the county of Kent at the moment. It's in tier three. <laughs> well, that is... That's a I mean, you know, if you get a permit to go to the pub, it's not open. <laughs> yeah, but, I, I mean, I do hope you're right that, you know, although there may well be temporary uh, chaos at some of the borders, um, this is assuming there is there is a deal. I mean, there will certainly yeah. be... Uh, a maybe maybe it'll be like those uh, those couriers, you know, who say, you know, we tried to to, to, to leave your package, but in fact uh, you were not in, so we've left it in Calais. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but I, you're right that by you know by the spring of uh, of, of next year, this you know the the, the problems will be sorted out, uh, and we'll have vaccines, and we might be back to uh, to something resembling. Uh, normal life before uh, before March this year. Well, I mean, that's on all counts, really, isn't it? Including coronavirus. But I mean, let me finally end with this um, question for you. Keir Starmer um, is apparently self-isolating again, having come into contact with somebody who has tested positive coronavirus. Now, it seems to me that the politi politicians of this country are very, very bad at avoiding coronavirus. <laughs> Boris Johnson has been self-isolating. Keir Starmer is now self-isolating for the second time. Now, either they're not very good at obeying their own rules or... The rules don't work. Which is it? No, well, I think politics is one of those. It's it's one of the businesses where you can't just just sit at home and, and work from home and, Why not? and not see. Well, because because you do have to have face to face meetings Why? with people. I mean, well, I mean, oh. you could say that about anything, couldn't you? I mean, you and I should be sitting face to face, but we're not. So why does he have to do it? Um, 
Because I, I, I do think politics is a bit of a different business. Is I it? mean, it does involve. It does involve. I mean, I suppose you have to be in the same room as somebody to stab them in the back. I suppose there is that. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is, Keir Starmer has been going into Westminster, and uh, that uh, as have I. Uh, which means that he is going to be in in close proximity. I mean, not not necessarily closer than two metres, but he's going to be in proximity with his staff. I bet he hasn't been um, in the same room as Jeremy Corbyn. I bet he hasn't been in the same room as Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> I bet he hasn't. Um, although Jeremy Corbyn has been in uh, has been in West too. I mean, it it would be quite interesting if they bumped into each other at the in the, in the coffee queue. Well, shouldn't Corbyn uh, be shielding, given that he's over seventy? No, Jeremy Corbyn is still around. I mean, I've I've seen him in the, in, in in Westminster buying uh, buying a cup of coffee with his wife. Yeah. Uh, but not at the same time as Keir Starmer is there buying a cup of coffee. Doesn't she just give uh, him some of her coffee? I mean, she runs a coffee company. <laughs> I mean, for heaven's sake, you know. Listen, um, I, all I'm worried about is that they all seem to be getting it a lot more frequently than everybody else. So clearly, they're doing something wrong. Well, they're doing politics, Mike. I mean, that's 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 what they're doing wrong. And politics is a people business, is it? If if I, if I can say that. Well, okay. And yeah, I mean, Westminster has always been. It's been a sort of. It's been a hot spot. Uh, you know, as as we as we saw uh, uh, early on in the in in the crisis. You know, Boris Johnson went to hospital, and everybody else got it. Yeah, I mean, everyone in Downing Street pretty much has had coronavirus. You know. Yeah. So- all be immune by now. But we, all we work in the media business. I don't know what the independent's been like, but I mean, in this building here, we're very careful and we haven't had a mass outbreak of coronavirus just because we come into the office. Uh, no, but then as a, you know, as a politician, you do have to meet people all the time. I mean, and, and people want to be, want to be spoken to face by face to face and, and you want to speak to them face face to face. Cause that's, that's how you do real negotiations. I mean, that's what's happening in, in Brussels, yeah. is they have have to do it face to face, and you know that's been disrupted by by people having to self isolate. To be as well. fair, but, given that they haven't been able to find any kind of common ground, they might as well not bother. Well, we'll see about that. We'll <laughs> see. We'll see what it's like at the end of the week, Mike. We shall see. I shall talk to you soon, John. And as ever, we'll hold you to account. Thank you very much indeed, John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at the Independent, uh, very sensible man, uh, but doesn't really agree with me on very many things, or I don't really agree with him on very many things. But it's right, isn't it, about these politicians? They're all getting coronavirus. Their aides are all getting coronavirus. They're all self-isolating. So it can't be right, can it? Either they're not obeying the instructions and they're not social distancing, or the rules don't work. It can't be both, can it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now, though, uh, it is in fact time uh, to talk to Annabel Denham, Director of Communications at the Institute of Economic Affairs, because, of course, over the course of the last weekend, it's been quite remarkable. Uh, we did a show on Saturday morning, uh, myself and Kevin O'Sullivan, which we haven't done uh, for a very, very long time, about basically the whole idea of £1.5 billion being spent over the weekend, Christmas shopping uh, and people going back into pubs because of Tier 2 restrictions uh, and Tier 1 restrictions being uh, lifted from the, ma- the big lockdown of the pre- previous four weeks. Let's find out if the the tills were jingling as they were supposed to be. Annabelle, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, Mike. So, um, I mean, I saw some incredible pictures over the course of the weekend of Regent Street, which apparently now has been pedestrianised to the point where you can't drive up and down and watch the lights. Um, But it looked like there were thousands of people out, Nottingham. I saw pictures of the same people at Christmas markets. Was there a lot of money spent this weekend? I mean, yes, there was. But, you know, what you need to bear in mind is that on average, shopper numbers were a quarter below 2019 levels. 
Um, so while people are flocking to the high street, while there is this pent up demand, it's just not manifesting itself yet in mm. people getting their credit cards out, getting onto the high street and spending money. And let's not forget, this is exactly what the high street businesses need. Many smaller businesses are dependent on people coming and shopping there over the Christmas period. That's actually what keeps them afloat for the rest of the year. And as I say, we're just, we're just not seeing that yet. I do actually separately think that there is a question to be asked over whether, you know, the, what the impact on family and social life of the new restrictions might be. I mean, it seems like these measures have been designed to minimise the economic damage, mm. but in doing so, they might have increased the social cost. I mean, is it not quite odd that you can mingle with complete strangers in a shop, but not with your friends and family in your own home or even in a restaurant? Yeah. You know, no unless you're in that one percent who are in tier one um and yet you can go to a shop and mingle with countless other people yes well funnily enough the, the one of the pictures that i saw at the weekend from the center of birmingham which looked very busy and people were sitting in in, in various different places hanging out with each other uh, was from a, a hotelier who has rung this show before he's got two hotels around the kenilworth area that he's not allowed to open because they're in tier three and yet you know, all sorts of people are able to do all the things that they would be doing inside his hotel um, in other places. It's, it's mad, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So it feels a little discriminatory. I mean, particularly what we're seeing against um, pubs, against the hospitality sector, quite why there is no um, indoor socialising in those uh, places, but you can in others. Um, it doesn't sort of really seem clear. I mean, our head of lifestyle economics, Christopher Snowden, looked into this. He looked at the evidence on which these measures have been introduced, and they're really outdated. I mean, it's based on what pubs were like pre-July 2020, before right. they these regulations before they'd really adapted to ensure that it was safe you know wearing face masks before getting to your table and ensuring that tables were spread out and all of these measures that um hospitality venues had taken um to ensure that they were so covid secure just don't seem to have been factored in so a lot of this um these restrictions have been introduced on on outdated and very tenuous evidence yes i mean certainly there's a lot of people that i've seen uh, on social media over the course of the last couple of days seem to be eating an awful lot uh, in order to have more than one drink in a bar you know because an awful lot of pubs are actually sticking to this mad rule um that you can only drink while you're eating Yes, exactly. I mean, we had last week all of the fury over the scotch egg mm. and there have been countless pictures on Instagram of people having onion rings and calling it a substantial <laughs> meal. Right. Um, I mean, the substantial meal thing, there's absolutely no evidence. I mean, it's just as though it's been churned out of some random policy generator that some bright spark in government has tried to think of ways in which we could uh, uh, limit the transmission of the virus and that's one of the things that's been thrown out there somewhat randomly um but it's got no basis uh, no grounding in evidence no quite and so i mean it was kind of ironic as well i thought that it was supposedly small business saturday uh, on saturday uh, at a time and even mark drakeford in wales put out a message to everybody to go and support their small businesses and their local shops when half of them uh, have been ruined by his policies yeah, well, exactly. I mean, we know that 11,000 outlets shut in the first half of 2020. Mm. That's twice as many as in the same period last year. I mean, just last week, we heard about new casualties of COVID restrictions, Debenhams, for instance, um, going into administration. And I'm afraid we're just going to hear more and more of that over the coming months. A lot of these businesses were just hanging on by a thread after the first lockdown. They were really dependent on Christmas business. And at the moment, they're just not seeing it. People are not getting out to the shops they're not spending money in the way that we would like to see i mean in some ways you could say that retail just hasn't had its v-shaped recovery yet right. 
No, quite. And I mean, a lot of people are starting to say things like, you know, we may never see a return to um, city living in the same way as it used to be. We may never see people commuting to work every day, for example. The trains uh, are still as empty as as they can be. Um, You know, people tending to work from home if they can. I mean, are you worried uh, and and is the business uh, side of things worried that retail will suffer a similar fate and that it may never really recover? I mean, that's quite possible. What we're seeing um, in many areas with COVID is an acceleration of pre-existing trends. And the death of the high street is one of those. Now, I actually wrote an article back in April saying that it was too soon to sound the death knell for the high street. My feeling is that it wasn't COVID and the pandemic wasn't going to lead to a permanent shift in consumer behavior. But as the months have gone on, as more and more stores are shuttering for good, um, it's very difficult to uh, to feel all that optimistic. My positivity is, is certainly dissipating. Now, mm. what we will see coinciding with that is um, increased calls for digital sales taxes, for you know clampdowns on businesses like Amazon, which take up at the moment the lion's share of online retail um i mean amazon itself was expected to bag about 65 percent of uk black friday sales um just to give you a sense of its market dominance but what we're also seeing and is less discussed is a move to online for a lot of small businesses they're really adapting they're really trying to find new ways of reaching consumers and changing their business models and one of those is is to go online so we need to be very careful about how we treat online retailers because what we do for amazon we'll be doing for smaller businesses that will really struggle to um, keep up with the incumbents. Um, But, you know, broadly speaking, I think um, we are going to see a shift in in consumer behaviours. I think we're going to see more stores closing and we can't look to artificially prop those up by uh, crippling online retailers. Instead, we need to allow this kind of creative destruction to take place. We need to allow adaptation and accept that in future more people will simply want to do their shopping online. I mean, businesses like Amazon ultimately are good for consumers. They make it a lot easier for people to buy products they're making products cheaper they're making them more convenient they arrive uh, on time so let's not bash kind of big tech just yet because um they're yeah providing a lot of good yes. to consumers. i mean the other big story today annabelle just to touch upon it before i let you go um about your christmas shopping uh, is uh, brexit of course you know the big uh, week is supposedly happening this week we're supposedly going to be seeing a de- another deadline on thursday Uh, How is business um, sort of looking upon it? Because, of course, like everything else in this world now, you can't really get a straight answer from anyone depending on what side of the fence they're on. I mean, is business concerned? My feeling is uh, basically that business will go on, business will continue, business will be done. And you and I will be sitting here at the same time next year moaning about Christmas shopping. Quite possibly. Um, I think what we know is very damaging for businesses is uncertainty. Business owners like to be able to plan. They like to know what's coming ahead. And Mm. part of the problem with the communication that you've been critical of is that it's just not especially clear. Businesses don't quite know how they're going to be impacted. And it makes it very difficult for them to prepare for the future. Now, one thing I would say, um, I used to work at the Entrepreneurs Network, which is a think tank that... um, tries to look at policy to make it better for people to start and grow their businesses. And one thing that entrepreneurs that I spoke to were very concerned about is taking on workers. Now, so this is the ending of free movement and how they are going to get the access to talent that they need Mm. in order to scale their businesses. And let's not forget that actually 
nearly half of the owners of the UK's fastest growing businesses are foreign born. So that's just a sort of small part of Brexit that could be quite damaging to um, particularly kind of startups that are fast growing, perhaps um, operating out of the Silicon roundabout. And they're going to find it really difficult to get that access to talent they need to hire workers that they need in order to grow their businesses really quickly and take on more workers and pay more taxes and generally be very um, positive for the UK economy. And of course, that's what we need as we emerge from this crisis. We need to make it as easy as possible for businesses to grow, to take on uh, workers because we're going to have so many redundancies. You want to make it as easy for them to employ people as possible. Um, I mean, one other thing I would just say on Brexit is that while we've got this to uh, metaphorical, well, not even metaphorical, literal uh, clock ticking, um, I, I don't think that we're going to negotiate uh, the entire deal with the European Union in one go. And I think it's a bit like this the slogan yeah. around getting done and the transition phase and everybody thinks that you know we're going to get to the first of january and it's all going to be behind us mm. i think we're going to be returning to the negotiation yeah I, I agree i think it's an absolutely it's an ongoing thing which will continue to go on uh, do you have to go yeah. around the silicon roundabout by the way to get to silicon valley um well, I'm not sure. I mean, you struggle. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. Anyway, don't you, with uh, the travel restrictions. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you can't go anywhere. Uh, Annabelle, thank you very much indeed. Annabelle Denham, Director of Communications at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Uh, I agree with her actually about Brexit. It will be an ongoing process. There's no good. There's no way that you can negotiate everything to a fine point and leave it at that. Absolutely no way. But. Trust me, this time next year, I'll be sitting here, you'll be sitting where you're sitting, listening to what I'm saying, and nothing really much will have changed, right? Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let us turn straight away to Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist. Very good morning to you, Peter. Good morning to you, too. Very, very uh, good to talk to you. A fascinating column you wrote. But, but I just want your thoughts, first of all, before we go on, uh, about what I just said about my mother. I couldn't believe the reaction from some people uh, on the news that she declared she didn't want to take the vaccine because she's uh, too old and doesn't want it and would prefer to give it to somebody else. And people are actually admonishing her for that. It is extraordinary, isn't it? I think this has, has taken on the shape of a, almost of a semi-religious cult now. Mm. Uh, the belief in the, uh, the 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 whole COVID system of thought is now so powerful that people no longer see individuals as individuals, but on the basis of how readily they conform to the dogma. Yeah. That doesn't really matter whether she's 97 or 32 or 120. Uh, the fact is she wouldn't be a good person unless she wore the mask, had the vaccination, uh, hid inside, uh, did all the things that, uh, that, that the religion, the yeah. pseudo-religion, I might say, demands that they do. I've never seen uh, so, so quickly a whole system of thought take over a large part of the population. Mm. It does make me wonder what else we might embrace in the future if it is, if it is backed, as this has been, by a, a, a considerable dose of fear, uh, the most powerful mind-changer of all, an immense amount of government propaganda. Well, I, I often say this, and it still seems to me to be a striking thing. Has there ever been in peacetime so much taxpayers' money spent on propaganda? Mm. I don't think there's ever been anything remotely resembling this. I think it's almost certainly unconstitutional. But it's unchallengeable, and it just keeps on coming. On, on my way to work this morning, I found that my local council had, had stuck huge, great things on the pavement, mm. saying, face space whatever the other thing is 
It's ridiculous, so it's isn't it? I can't even remember what it is. Right. But there, there they were in bright colours, and people would walk over them and pay presumably no attention to them. It, it, it all costs money and effort. It takes up the time of council employees who, I promise you, could be doing lots more useful things around where right. I live than sticking sticking uh, propaganda on the pavement. Yeah. Well, I had a similar experience at the weekend. I went and did that thing that we all do at this time of year and went and bought a Christmas tree uh, from the local garden centre. But, of course, got there, there was a queue for people to get in, even though once we got in, there was hardly anybody in there. Um, but I was uh, unfortunate enough to walk towards the door when the guy behind the door, who was, of course, wearing a mask, said, would you mind t- uh, taking a step back to the barrel? Uh, to which I said, uh, where, where's the barrel? I see no barrel. I see a, a bench. I see uh, a pump over there. I don't see a barrel. And we all, I mean, I, it was almost at the point where I thought, he's now going to probably refuse to let me in because I'm being a bit chippy about things. And then when he told, when he pointed to the barrel, I said, well, there's other people standing there. Surely you don't want me to go and stand too near them, do you? <laughs> and it was ludicrous. I mean, I found myself in this situation, of course, all my family were, as usual, embarrassed by my behaviour and were looking at me as if they wished I'd shut up. But I was like, well, what, what, what have we become now? No, but there is, it's, it's just it's sort of moments. There's a, a, a advertisement in some of the papers yesterday uh, showing a man, a young man, and an elderly woman in a in a living room, and, the, and the, there's a kind of green slime in the air, <laughs> and the young man is flinging the window open wide on a winter's day, saying, "Well, let's have the windows open so we don't all catch COVID." Right. I, I, the what the woman's response to this is, is not recorded, but if she's like most women I know, she thinks, "Shut up." <laughs> I know. Exactly. Too cold. Exactly. <laughs> but, I mean, this is the other thing. I mean, the, 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 the arrival. Yeah. Not unless you want to make them ill. I know. I mean, the, 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 the arrival. All, all these things are so counterproductive. They really are. And the arrival of the vaccine is greeted uh, with a sort of a, a combination of the Beatles' first tour of America and uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And yet, we were told last week that the vaccine that we are currently uh, getting delivery of does not stop you getting coronavirus, does not stop you spreading coronavirus, and will not lead you to not have to self-isolate if you have to self-isolate. So, I mean, it's not exactly uh, a game-changer, is it? Well, it does seem to be. Uh, But who knows? If you want it, I I don't want to stand in the way of anyone who wants to go and have it. Uh, if, if it. If it does represent a way out of this lunacy for people, then, then let as many people have it as possible. Mm. I, I, I can't... I, if any, I, well, I get the, the impression that the announcement, the mere announcement of its existence has, in fact, freed quite a lot of people's minds from the chains of, of COVID hysteria. They now think the crisis is basically over. They can get vaccinated and start worrying. Uh, and that, if that's happening, then that, that might be, uh, accidentally, because I'm, I'm sure it's not the government's intention, it might be the beginning of the end of this long period of state-sponsored panic, which cannot be anything but good. So I, I, I'm not, as far as the vaccination is concerned, I, if, if people want to have it, then if, if it makes them feel that they can stop treating every other human being as a, as a, as a toxic menace, then great. Let, have, the, have the vaccination for heaven's sake and, and stop behaving like a... Like a, like a normal person again. Yes, exactly right. Tell us a bit about what you wrote this weekend uh, and the kind of silent, quiet, creeping revolution that you believe has been going on in this country. Well, I don't know whether you can even say that I believe it. I think it's pretty evidently the case. It was it was stimulated by this curious business of the Eton teacher who's mm. up in, who's been dismissed for, for refusing to take down from his personal website a, a, a video... A, which I, I don't like very much myself, but he's quite entitled, in my view, to say those things about uh, about patriarchy and, 
of the sex war, but the, the, the headmaster of Eton was told to take it down, and this, is, this has caused a, a great ruction between, between them, which may well end in his final dismissal, or might not. But my point was this. The idea that people have that institutions like Eton College are somehow bastions still of conservative thought and, uh, and, and, and freedom is, is completely fatuous. Mm. This country underwent in 1997, a, a political revolution which matched the cultural revolution which had been going on here for 30 years before that. And at that point, particularly with the passage of the Equality Act of 2010, uh, the, the, the whole nature of the country changed. And it really became important. The, the law actually backed what, say, the only shorthand for it is political correctness. The law actually backed political correctness. Mm. An example of this, so it's an important one to me, uh, but it's also, it also tells you quite a lot about what, what, what happened. By proclaiming the principle of equality, what it did was it stated that Christianity was equal to all other religions. Now, that may seem a, a perfectly reasonable statement, particularly if you're not Christian. But in a country which is and has been specifically Christian in its law and government for centuries, and you look at the coronation service, if you doubt me, and even the architecture of the Houses of Parliament is specifically uh, specifically Christian. Mm. Uh, the, the the way that we eat, dress, and behave has its basis in, in Christian scripture and thought. So to make Christianity equal to Islam, Hinduism, Jainism, any other religion you care to name, is is it, it may be terribly nice if, if equality is what you believe to be most important, but it dethrones Christianity as the principal uh, basis of, of thought and law in this country. And it's a revolutionary moment. The whole, all the, and it, it also states all these protected characteristics, certain things which you can, which if you are, uh, you can demand the protection of the law against anything which you regard uh, as uh, as, a, as criticism or a threat. Of you. And this is this is really the basis mm. of an enormous industry under which practically anybody in these protected characters, protected groups, uh, is able to to to, to put uh, to, to put down really any attempts uh, to disagree with what they believe. And it's a form of uh, it's not it's not yet totalitarian, but it's certainly a form of, of thought control, and it's yeah. revolutionary in its effect. This has gone together with the, the complete transformation of the police, uh, who, who simply who look vaguely the same, but don't in any way uphold the sort of law they upheld in in, in my mm. says, up, up to the age of about 30 uh, of the schools of the universities of the broadcasting organizations all this achieved by what's called the long march through the institutions beginning in the 1960s and all the 1960s trots uh, such as i was rising to power in their organizations and institutions uh, in round right about the same era that blair and his people came to office. Astonishing facts, and I've written a long article about this, it's, which anybody can look up on the internet. Very striking numbers of Blair's cabinet uh, were supposedly ex-Marxists, mm. one kind or another, Trotskyists or communists. And the interesting thing is, that unlike me, I can't stop talking about it, but if you ask any of <laughs> them, uh, if you ask Peter Mandelson or, or, or John Reed or, or, or Alistair Darling or Alan Milburn or Stephen Byers or Bob Ainsworth or Blair himself, who turns out to be a, a, a student Trotskyist as well. If you ask them about it, they don't generally want to talk about it very much. No, I and mean it's fascinating that they are so reticent about it. I think because they they moved on from being sort of teenage revolutionaries into being um, much more serious grown-up revolutionaries, and they they could continue to transform the country. One of Blair's speechwriters uh, who, who went off to work in education, a very clever man called Peter Hyman 
said quite recently the new Labour project was far more revolutionary than anything Jeremy Corbyn mm. ever came up with. And it's them saying it's not me. Yeah. Well, it also it was also very successful, unlike Jeremy Corbyn's campaigns, which more more or less almost always failed. I mean, you you mentioned uh, being called into a a room when you were working at the Express uh, to be told by the senior management that uh, the place had been bought by Lord Hollick, and from that point on, it was now going to be a new Labour paper. I actually remember um, just before the 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 uh, the election that Blair won, answering the phone when I was sitting on the foreign desk uh, to Clive Hollick. Uh, who was ringing uh, up to look for the editor uh, so that he could dictate a leader to him about why Blair was the next big thing. Um, and unfortunately, he couldn't speak to uh, Richard Addis, the editor at the time, because he was already being dictated a leader by Lord Stevens, who thought he was still in charge, who was telling him why the Tories should win. So it was an amazing situation where basically there were sort of duelling um, banjos going on. Uh, but of course, Hollick was the new owner, so he won. Yeah, but the curious thing was that so many of the of the readers of the paper didn't notice no. that the, the paper, which many of them had read since the days of empire, had, had actually become a, a Blairite organ. Right. Uh, is the way in which these things happen. The the invisible revolution that people don't see, in which everything appears to be the same, but is is inwardly totally transformed. Yeah. Uh, so much more effective than the the noisy sort of revolution that, that people like Jeremy Corbyn tried try to achieve. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why the, the serious revolutionaries loathe people like Corbyn. The big row in Labour Party is between the serious revolutionaries and the joke revolutionaries. And the serious revolutionaries wish the joke revolutionaries would shut up. Because right. they only draw attention to what's going on. Yes, exactly right. So do you think it all began as a sort of religious thing then, uh, this revolution, that they wanted equality of religion first and then sort of everything else followed? Or, or was that just accidental? Yeah. I mean, this does, all this has its roots in in the in the, the thinking of the the French revolutionary factions of the of the eighteenth century, who of course came to power in the in the French Revolution at the end of at the end of the eighteenth century, particularly in seventeen ninety three when the guillotining really got going. Mm. They hated uh, the Christian religion and uh, actually mounted a, a campaign of dechristianization, in which the churches were stripped and prostitutes were sat on the altars and all kinds of things were done to, to persuade the French people that Christianity was dead. They hated it because it, 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 it actually contains this fundamental idea that the man can't be altered, uh, that the human nature is an unalterable thing, uh, based on the, the theological belief that man is, is, uh, is made in the image of God. Mm. And they wanted to get rid of that. They thought man could be changed. They thought they could make a new man, uh, and by which they tried to achieve by a great deal of violence. And those who refused to be the new kind of men were often either drowned or, or beheaded. And this idea persisted and, the, and then came to birth again in the Soviet Union, where millions of people were killed for refusing to be new men. And it, it, this, this, this idea is the, the reason why they hate Christianity is it does fundamentally uh, offer objections mm. to what they propose to do. And it, you, you can find a lot of atheists who are not revolutionaries. It's very hard to find a revolutionary who isn't an atheist. Yes, that's very true, because there is this kind of thing. I mean, you talk about beheadings and, and, and sort of drownings. It feels a bit like that now, even though, you know, we're not actually being beheaded or drowned. People who don't come along uh, with the, 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 you know, the, the kneeling uh, for Black Lives Matter, that, you know, if you believe in Christmas, if you think that Jesus Christ was actually born in Bethlehem, all of that, you know, you're somehow out of touch with reality and that you're obviously crazy and mad and bonkers. Uh, and if you want to buy a pink dress for your daughter and a blue shirt for your son that's somehow also bizarre and there's something wrong with you well revolutionaries have learned a lot uh, since the since the failure and it was a, a huge failure of the soviet union 
uh, the biggest failure they ever had. They, they, they didn't go through this, and they decided that they would try a different approach. And one, one of the things they worked out was that openly persecuting and murdering people is extremely unpopular and, and often, <laughs> often creates martyrs who, yeah. end, who, come, who come back to haunt you. Mm. Uh, you. You look at what happened after the Soviet Union collapsed, the number of people who the, the Soviet authorities and the Eastern European uh, dictators had, had crushed as a result of being martyred by them, rose to power and were their principal opponents. So it's dangerous. What they've realized is much, much easier to do what I, I call marshmallow repression, where you don't throw people into jail or, or, or cut their heads off or, or, or machine gun them. You just deprive them of their employment. And this is the real threat, which is, has been extraordinarily successful all over the Western world in the past 20 years. Anybody who actually stands up against this, what they lose is not their life or even their physical liberty in most cases, but they do lose their employment and therefore they become poor and they're also chucked out of whatever it was they were doing, mm -hmm. so their voices are no longer heard. And now we have this, this, this thing called cancellation in which people who are, who are deemed to have said something wrong are unpersoned, mm. in the old Stalinist uh, term. Uh, they cease, to all intents and purposes, to exist. No, nobody ever hears them anymore. They never get near a microphone, a radio station, a, 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 a publisher. They just vanish as if they'd never been. Mm. But nobody, nobody sees this as barbaric or cruel, and so people don't protest against this. And it comes in little tiny slices, uh, none of them big enough. If you, if ever you raise any issue, someone says, "Well, why are you choosing to die on that hill?" This is the great cliché. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm not. I don't wish to die on any hill. Thank right. you very much. A valley either. Uh, but each of these issues is important in itself. Mm. But it's the, the the technique known as salami slicing, a, a, a term invented by um, by Matthias Rakashi, the Hungarian communist leader in the fifties, is is you take each issue, you take such a small slice that most people will not protest against it. And most people say, oh, what are you making a fuss about? Why are you dying on that hill? Mm. And then you take another slice and another slice. And over time, the whole sausage disappears. Mm. Uh, but, but by the time the sausage has disappeared, it's too late for anyone to do anything about yeah. it. And all we said, why, why did you want to die on that hill? Uh, find that actually it might have been worth dying on it or at least fighting on it. But they've lost everything. And yes. this is how the society we used to have. Uh, somebody has published on, on, on Twitter today an extraordinary picture of the Christmas lights in Oxford Street in 1968. They are specifically, explicitly Christian. Mm. You see it, and you think well, that, that couldn't happen now. Right? Uh, you, it, 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 there would be so much difficulty about it. it. Couldn't happen. I remember a few years ago there was a British Transport Police advertisement, which was originally going to say, uh, it, it, it originally going to have a picture of a policeman patrolling with the words "Christmas presents" underneath, mm. and, you know, leaden pun. Uh, but at the, the last minute, they decided they couldn't say Christmas, so <laughs> the pictures were put out with the words "holiday presents," yeah. which means even less. Uh, because people were afraid of even mentioning Christmas. Christmas cards, which say uh, season's greetings mm. or happy holidays. Happy holidays, so, yeah, which absolutely but, nobody well, really it, says. But, it, it, but, but if, if anyone had told you in 1968 it would be impossible to have Christmas decorations on, on, on Regent Street or Oxford Street with a, with a Christian theme, uh, you'd have said, good heavens, what a ridiculous idea. Yeah. But it happened. And if, if anyone had said to you in 1968, the Daily Express will become a Labour-supporting newspaper. People say, must right. be joking. Well, but I mean, and of course, yeah. the ultimate irony, Peter, now, this year, is that at Christmas, the one place you won't be able to go uh, to do anything about Christmas will be a church, because they're all well, shut. You go there, 
but, but when you get there, people, people, are, people are wearing masks and, and, and paying probably seems to be much more fealty to the great God of the state and the COVID, the, the, the COVID fear regime than they are to Christianity. I, I don't get me started on it because it's a, very much a minority interest, but good heavens. Uh, church services these days are very odd events. Yes, they are. Peter, sadly, we're out of time again. Great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll be talking to you some more before uh, the holidays, as we call them uh, now in our post-COVID, post-Christian, post-Christmas world that which we live. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Somebody actually suggested to me that I should do the 12 Days of Wokemas um, as a kind of a going out to Christmas idea. I might do that. You know, the 12 most ridiculously woke stories. You'd have to say Harry and Meghan uh, are going to figure in that. They're certainly going to figure in Plank of the Year, which we're going to do uh, just before I go home for Christmas, uh, which will be towards the end of this month, of course. Uh, but leading up to that, let us talk now to Angela Levin, uh, our favourite raw biographer, who's going to tell us what on earth they're up to now. Angela, very good uh, afternoon to you. Good morning. Hello. Yes, how are you? I'm good, yes, thank you. Good. Now, I mean, nothing really surprises me about these two, the Duke and Duchess of Netflix, as we now call them. Um, they're going to recognise do-gooders in the fields that they like to champion, we're told by the sun. I mean, can it get yeah. any worse? I always feel that they've reached the end, but they somehow managed to dig themselves <laughs> further down. I actually think that to try and compete with Her Majesty the Queen on the honours list yes. is a bit like tiny children playing mummies and daddies. You know, it's just not possible. They're nowhere near the rank. I'm astonished that Harry has given up um, caring one iota about his family and his wonderful grandmother. Right. He was such a great man when I met him and spent over a year with him. And now he just looks terrified if ever he speaks in case he's going to get a telling off mm. from Meghan. And... To agree to something like that is nonsense. They want standout players. Do you know what that is? I don't. No, I they don't really. You. But I can imagine that I would not be one of them and probably neither would you. <laughs> oh, don't be so rude. <laughs> I mean, you know, because it says here, right, that they're looking for uh, people who have given uh, charitable service, people who have um, talked about science, literature, racial justice, gender equity, environmental stewardship, youth empowerment, health and mental health. So, I mean, you know, we all talk about those things, but I imagine that they would be so averse because like all people uh, who think of themselves as virtuous, almost anyone who disagrees with anything they say is immediately part of the problem. Yes, I think you can't do that really. I mean, it's nonsense. Anybody can play that game. You you, know, you can be in school and you can make your other pupils come forward and win awards for all sorts of things. Yeah. But it's all meaningless, isn't it? It's just a way of getting them more publicity. They're going to do it through the Archwell Foundation at last, bringing it to life. It's taken a long time because they didn't realise you had to sign forms. Um, but it's, it's just tragic. And I don't think anyone will take any notice of them. It's not going to mean that they would have more respect because anyone who is good at these things, and some of them are very important, can continue with their work. They can talk on various media. They don't need a little... What's, what's the mark going to be? Are they going to have a sword and get them to bend down? <laughs> and, and virtually they're going to put the sword on each of their shoulders, you know. Well, you um, can imagine this would be some form of... you are... 
you know, now you are something else. Now you are a lord. Yes. Um, well, you can imagine that they will come up with some ludicrous kind of uh, royal sounding name because as much as they don't want to be part of the royal family, they love the idea that they're associated with royalty um, and they love the idea of using little crowns and things, don't they, so that they can have the uh, appearance of being terribly important uh, while not actually being. I was saying jokingly that maybe we should send them, Angela, a definition of the word private. I was just looking at it here. Uh, the definition of the word private is uh, of a person having no official or public role or position. I mean, that's one <laughs> definition, which they've obviously completely decided to uh, to ignore. The other one is belonging to or for the use of one particular person only. I think one of the awful things as well is that they always um, announce these things when the royals are doing something important, as if they can't bear it. And I wonder which of them can't bear it most, um, that they're not one step ahead. Right. They're so competitive that it must be eating them up inside. I don't think this is a positive thing. I think this is another negative thing that eats them up. They've got to get their own back. I don't know why, because if they hadn't had the life they'd, led and Meghan hadn't joined the royal family she wouldn't be one of the most famous women in the world now yes it's all with the gratitude that should be given there's a sophistication there is good behavior but it's all about me 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 and right. it's just getting worse and worse i know well the last time that she gave that interview to the new york times about something very private that had happened to her um, you can yes. almost imagine her not being very happy to see that later on that day, Maradona had the uh, uh, disgraceful uh, um, behaviour of dying and therefore knocking, knocked her off the front pages. And Maradona was all over the front pages and she was kind of, you know, put further back into the papers. Here's another definition of the word private. If you describe someone as a private person, you mean that they are very quiet by nature and do not reveal their thoughts and feelings to other people. Now, uh, there's another version of private, which they clearly haven't read. Yes. Well, it's just it, does, it doesn't matter because I think they want to get it out there. And anybody who thinks that actually they're being hypocrites, which nine times out of ten they are, yeah. or it's do what I tell you, don't do what I do, um, it, it, it just doesn't work, I don't think. I think the attitude of the PRs, and they've got 12 of them now, who are obviously going to hunt down people, they've got something to do at last, who can get all these awards. Right. Um, that... Um, it, it's 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 just banal and pathetic, I'm afraid. It really is. It's a shame because I get the sense that actually Harry, if he wasn't with her, would be quite happy to disappear from view and would be quite happy to live a relatively quiet life. But as you say, she can't bear that and she'll be driven even more mad, won't she, today uh, by seeing William and Kate out there doing a three-day uh, UK tour, travelling by train and meeting people in Britain. They'll be, they'll be all over the papers this week. That will make her crazed, won't it? Yes, well, that's why she tried today, but it's not going to work. The interesting thing is that um, William and Kate are very grown up. They want to shine the spotlight on others. They want to cheer people up, you know, through this whole pandemic, the people who've been the frontline workers, mm. volunteers, they, they want to thank people. As we saw very early this morning at, at Euston Station, they are now in Scotland. But it's all to give, isn't it? It's not about me. They're no. not actually spreading all their, their thoughts about how they are and what they want and mm. what they think. It's actually, let me help other people. Let us show our gratitude. Let's all be in this together. I think that's a huge capital letter statement from them. You know, they're going to travel around and, and 
thank people and listen to what has happened to them and how they've been. I think it will be very moving and I think it's yeah. very well, the thing is, they get it, don't they? I mean, William and Kate understand that their role in life, it may not be an easy thing to do because I don't think many of us could do it, but their role in life is basically to walk into a room and cheer everybody up, and that's what they do, and I think that's a great skill um, and, a, and a great thing to do for people. And if only yeah. Harry and Meghan knew that and they could do that themselves, that would be great. Well, Harry had the example of his mother. She was brilliant at that. Yes. I mean, she would sit, as we know, with a time when HIV and AIDS was absolutely just ex exerting its power and terrifying everyone. And she would sit by the bedside and listen in a, such a genuine way. And, and that's what royals do when there's been disasters. They go there. They have to swallow their feelings and see people who are damaged and wounded and hurt and very moving and not and stop themselves crying actually as well yeah. from the sadness but these two it's all about me you know you've got to do this we're all raindrops we're all go, not going to travel except us yeah. because we like it you know it's just um ludicrous well it really is and when we think about what the world has gone through this year in particular um, you know, it's not really anybody's fault that people are far away from one another. But there doesn't seem to be any urgency uh, from from California, uh, from Harry and, and Meghan to come back and see Prince Philip, you know, who is, you know, getting, not getting any younger. The Queen, who's also, um, uh, you know, racking up the years and, and, and anybody else in the family. I think they're cowards. I think they don't want to do that because they will feel awkward um, and the conversation will be awkward. And I think they're just cowards staying away. There's no reason why they couldn't come. There really isn't. I mean, they could have come home for Christmas, couldn't they? It's not as if she's spending it with her dad. And if they do, they won't be able to have their little um, cottage because Eugenie and her husband are in there, pregnant Eugenie. Yeah, what is that all about? Because I've seen stories suggesting that it's not really for them to sublet it, if you like, to Eugenie. No. But they've said an announcement just a couple of days ago that they are going to stay there. So what are they going to do? Chuck them out, share the place. I mean, it's all it, its all what they call sort of paper talk. It mm. means nothing. Yeah. They're here to do tomorrow and they're on to something else. Yes. It's interesting, isn't it? Meanwhile, I was fascinated by your tweet earlier on, Angela, about the Queen and Christmas cards because, um, you know, she actually still writes and signs personally over 700 Christmas cards. 750 Christmas cards. And she starts signing them um, during the summer holiday when she's up in, um, up in Scotland. Yeah. Uh, can you imagine how much that would, time that would take and how your hands, particularly if you're Oh, my older, God. Do you know, I, I now, I, mean, I had to write a card the other day. Um, I literally can't, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't write anymore. I mean, my, literally, I've lost the ability to, to freehand write, you know, because one, it was never particularly good. My writing was always quite illegible. But I find even if just, if, if I've, even if I'm filling out a form or something, my hand's aching by the end of it because it's not something you do very much anymore. Yes, that's right. So the Queen can do that at 94. And if you think of the discipline there, it takes her from the summer till now mm. when they go out to complete them you know she is admirable beyond words and yet she's got now a grandson who disrespects her yeah. every time almost every time he opens his mouth it's very sad isn't it really i think it's very sad the queen doesn't show her emotions she's always been brought up to um 
not explain things, mm. but to be quiet and to not show emotion in public. Um, but she must be very wounded because she loved Harry dearly, as indeed she should. But when you've got somebody the other side of him who is manipulating him almost like a puppet, yeah. I'm afraid. Yeah, I'm afraid that's true. I don't think there's any harm in saying that because it's very clear. Um, we've all seen it with people that we know um, who marry someone. And sometimes it's the husband, sometimes it's the wife or vice versa. But you can see people changing, can't you? You do. Well, you see that with Kate and William as well. I mean, when you saw them this morning, mm. they were laughing. Kate was moving to the music. Um, and she they're very, very easy with each other. And I think there's been a big change since Harry and Meghan have gone, that they feel more relaxed. They're maybe not under attack. They may be um, been harassed by Harry. And, and they feel they're, they're very much a team. You can feel that. I don't really like that expression, but you can see that they're natural together and they both are um, hoping to do the right thing at the right time. And the way they talk and interchange, sometimes he does, sometimes yeah. she does it very nice to hear whereas harry and megan megan speaks and then harry reads something off a script because it sounds so phony yeah and meanwhile he's looking terrified <laughs> and she's just off. staring up at him right with this kind of manic um sort of fixed stare which just doesn't look normal it looks like she's acting the whole time yes yes and we've got a great tweet here from uh, uh, Cosmo who says, Harry and Meghan remind me of Rick in The Young Ones when he says, hands up, who likes me? And when nobody puts their hands up, he replies, I find this hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Because, I mean, literally, I mean, the people who do like Harry and Meghan or who like Meghan, certainly, are the most foul, ghastly people on social media. I mean, you and I were subjected to loads of it. I think you said you had a way of making sure you didn't see any of it. But, I mean, I saw a lot of it, a lot of it directed at you. Um, from these ghastly people who are the ones who supposedly are told by Megan to be kind and to be yes. nice and not to be poisonous and toxic on social media. They're anything but that. Yeah. You know, the, the group that likes Megan the most is 15 to 20s. And, me, and that's all right. Those are teenagers yeah. and they grow up and they make different decisions. Um, I don't mind people attacking me for it. I've got a right to say my view. And um, I don't listen to no but i mean like a lot of stuff on social media it goes beyond just a critique of what you think it's a kind of personal yeah. attack on you isn't it yeah and a very 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 few of them have ever met megan harry or even seen them no so it's a case of spouting when it's based on no real knowledge it's based on accepting a very superficial comment and statement that they've made yeah well the only chance you've got of meeting harry and megan now is if you buy a table for 10 grand uh, at some function they're hosting yes which is only rather unfortunate grand. yes it's cheap isn't it yeah. they must be more than that they have to earn a load of money to pay for their uh, mortgage and getting the whole huge house uh, cleaned and the garden done you know 16 bathrooms it needs quite a lot of scrubbing over time yeah i was going to say all these prs they've got 12 prs where are they all sitting and, and being housed because presumably they must have an office now mustn't they well i don't know about that but i do know that they've now got something to work on and finding enough people to give them honors for all the things that they've wanted them to do mm. but they have said they're not going to give up their a gas guzzling car, um, even though they're worried about the climate change yes. and pollution in the air. And, I, and I, I think to myself, how on earth can you expect other people to do it? 
we need an example. We all need examples. We need examples from our parents. We need examples from the royal family. And, and, um, but they make themselves out to be so special that they don't have to abide by these things, but they can tell us all what we have to do and how we have to do it. Oh, of course. I mean, you think at the very least that they would get, even because it's something that's quite expensive, at least an electric version of whatever it is they've got. Yes, I know. I know. It, Absolutely amazing. It, so Christmas it, for the Royals is different this year, isn't it? Because they're not going to be at Sandringham. Does that mean we won't see the usual kind of, you know, out and about stuff that we normally would see on Christmas Day? Oh, no, there'll be nobody going to church because no one's there. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are, are going to be... I mean, that's literally, that's literally the only thing that ever happens on Christmas Day. So what what is Sky going to do? They're going to be, have any pictures of anything. Yes, I know. Oh, I expect maybe there'll be something out of, of Windsor. There'll be a little display with soldiers or something. That hasn't come up yet. But I think that they are trying to set an example for mm. all of us that yeah. however much we want to be with our family, be very careful. Maybe this will be the Christmas where you're quiet and alone. And there's just been a... a, um, a, a, a checking on other people what they feel and apparently 50 people 50 percent of the people they tested said that they wouldn't be joining their family because they were concerned about their mother their father their grandfather mm. uncle and they will stay at home and there again we have um the queen setting an example yes. to us as she does so often and which and which um uh, william and kate are doing now you know thank people, feel part of it, make sure people feel appreciated. I think it does make a huge difference to people if someone says, thank you so much for, oh, you for know, sure. what you're doing. Um, rather than being told what to do as if we're um, dopes and yes. we haven't an idea for ourselves. No, you're absolutely right. Angela, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Angela Levin, Royal Biographer there uh, on the Queen uh, and what the Queen does and how the Queen operates. But how awful, isn't it, for the Queen uh, to have Prince Harry behaving like this uh, and now apparently uh, putting up their own honours system supposedly, uh, uh, up against the Queen's honours system. So I presume you'll get, uh, you know, Megan, uh, Megan's birthday honours. Will you get Megan's New Year's honours? For heaven's sake. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.